According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, as we get started. Our Savior emptied himself and he humbled himself. Two separate activities, and I think we've covered uh, everything that we're going to deal with in terms of emptied himself, and uh, this morning we have to understand what it means to humble (coughs) himself. And uh, this is what we're called to uh, imitate. We are called to uh, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will exalt us at the proper time. And I think on that basis, since it is an imperative, we're we're never commanded to kana'o. We don't exactly have a pre-incarnate glory. We can't... cannot owe ourselves even as he did, but we can humble ourselves even as he did, and we're commanded to. And we're commanded to have the attitude that he had when he emptied himself. So uh, all of these things are uh, very important for us to wrap our minds around. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking our Father to set aside our distractions to humble us under the authority of truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, uh, this is a true privilege. I thank you for this flock, unique in so many ways, Father, in in hunger for truth and uh, a desire to uh, dive even to the depths, Father. And I thank you for the Holy Spirit that uh, leads us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake that guides us in truth, even, uh, even the deep things of God. So Father, equip us, prepare us. Uh, suit us to be uh, adult sons and daughters, you know, fully engaged in the angelic conflict, fully operational in our priestly function, in our soldier function, in our ambassadorial function. Father, uh, equip us and use us in every facet that pleases you. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, as we've been dealing with it, I failed to chart the slide number, so We'll just uh, grab it this way. How about that? We will look at all the slides and pick the one that looks like where we left off. Maybe. No, no. How about there? When we talk about emptying, in fact, maybe even earlier than that. Now we covered all that. Covered that. I'm going the wrong direction. Here we go. Jesus Christ emptied himself. All right, and so what does this mean? What does it mean to kanao? What does it mean to empty yourself? And uh, the idea, remember, don't fall for anything that tells you that Jesus uh, stopped being God. That's the biggest snare that's out there. Jesus Christ is, is, always has been, always will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he cannot stop being God and he cannot be diminished in his capacity as God. 
And so I do like the translation that says laid aside his privileges. And you might have that in a footnote, all right? And in my Bible it says, but emptied himself, footnote one, you look in the, in the bottom of the page and it says, or emptied himself. And I do like that. It means he laid aside those privileges. It means he stopped exercising the prerogatives he has as God. So he stopped actively exercising omniscience and omnipresence and, and, uh, and, and omnipotence and all of those attributes, see. He stopped u- employing them, using them. That the only capacity he employed was a human capacity during the time of his hum- uh, humility, during the time of his first advent, humiliation. He had to identify with us. And that means he had to become, uh, the Word had to become flesh, he had to walk our walk, he had to suffer. The suffering was necessary, and we have a lot of that coming up in the book of Hebrews. It was the suffering that equipped him to be the merciful and faithful high priest and uh, suited him to, to function not only at the cross, beyond the cross. Today he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is the merciful and faithful high priest today on the basis of what he learned through the suffering of his first advent. All right. So whatever definition we come up with, any conclusions regarding Jesus' self-emptying cannot violate immutability or any attribute of deity. And so I I stress that again and again and again. I'm not going to go back through uh, this point, point D though. uh, I'm not going to go back through this, but I want you to see how it's parallel is that we have the aorist active verb for emptying that's followed by participles, okay? And so everything that we learned in those verses applies today, applies to this morning's message, because the same thing is happening here that happened there. So we have an aorist active verb for emptying. So he emptied himself, aorist active. He did it, and he did it at a point, okay? The punctiliar aspect of aorist tense. He did it, he did it at some point. Okay, And then when we have taking and being made and being found, those are the participles that are connected to that verb, emptied himself, right? And we dealt with that. We have the same thing here, so I'm going to pass by all this, we're not going to talk about this again, form, likeness, appearance. Um, Are they saying the same thing or are they saying three different things? We discussed both possibilities there. All right, so now we're touching on humbled himself, okay? Once again, Jesus humbled himself. And once again, we have a finite verb. We have something that he actively did, active voice. Jesus did this, not passive voice. It's not that God the Father humbled Jesus. It's Jesus humbled himself. Active voice verb with a reflexive pronoun. The object of what he humbled was himself. He had to humble himself. And this too is going to have participles connected to it. That's why we, I stressed it in the, in the first verb of kanao, and I'm going to stress it here in tapenao and humbled himself as well. And so how did he humble himself? What did he do to humble himself? Well, it says um, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, so here's the participle here of becoming becoming an obedient one, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we've got a participle, we have a participle that that teaches something and then it gets extended, even. All right, so uh, humility, obedience is a humility function, 
right? And we're going to see that. We're going to spell it all out for you here this morning. And so we have things that we want to do to humble ourselves. Let me tell you, the number one thing we want to do is obey, okay? And not just obey, there's a difference between obeying and becoming obedient. Because you can obey without becoming obedient. Know what I'm talking about? You can obey in purely the externals, in purely the things done, and yet inwardly, your heart is not wanting to do what you're gritting your teeth and doing. And so you are doing what you were told to do, but you're still not obedient, not from the heart. Okay? And, and Jesus addressed that. He spoke on that. He preached on that. He talked about two brothers and one that said he would do it, but then didn't do it. And then the other brother said, no, I'm not going to do that. But then later he repented and he went and he did it. See? So um, these, are, these are concepts that that uh, we have to deal with as we talk about the imperative here, because you and I are commanded to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And uh, obedience is a, is a venue in which we do that, but we've got to make sure that it's the appropriate obedience from the heart. And so uh, here's what we have here. So verse 8, and remember we start verse 8 with, he humbled himself. We take that phrase, uh, being found in appearance as a man, and we pushed it back into verse 7, and uh, we moved our number 8 to uh, after the comma, uh, being found in appearance as a man, comma, write the 8 in there, change the versification. All right, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's what I want to deal with here today. So, um, what are we looking at? Self-humbling. Self-humbling. Sub-point one, self-humbling is an active verb with a reflexive pronoun. Tapenao is our verb. Tapenao. We've seen cognate forms not that long ago. Uh, it speaks to the lowliness. It speaks to a lower diminished status. It speaks to um, being under something. To get along with humble means. This verb is going to come back again in chapter 4 when Paul talks about, I know how to live in prosperity. I know how to live in adversity. That he's learned the secret of this. Um, it wasn't that long ago, back in verse 3, that we talked about uh, do nothingness from uh, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, all right? And so that was an adjectival form, or, or the, the noun, tapenafrasune, that we had in Philippians 2.3. So we've had at least the, the aspect of this previously uh, dealt with. But tapenao, number 5053 is the Strong's index number, 5053, 14 New Testament usages, and it speaks to a lowliness, okay? So you want to think low. If that helps you, um, you know, in thinking low as opposed to thinking high, as far as not uh, inflating your own attitude uh, with respect to yourself, uh, not to overthink, okay, which is the, the, the natural carnal tendency of fallen man that uh, will be promoted by the world, by the flesh, by the devil. Uh, none of those adversaries is going to contribute towards legitimate biblical humility. They're all geared to arrogance. They're all geared to self-exaltation. Self-improvement, uh, self-glorification, self-love, and all the things there. Okay, so um, tapenao, uh, to, to humble, and and uh, 
as an active verb, it, uh, it can have a variety of applications because other people can humble you. You can humble other people. And you can do so in a sanctified biblical way. You can also do so in a, uh, in a carnal, worldly way. You can humiliate a person or you can humble a person, right? Which do you want to do? Okay, trick question. But, um, but th- the point being is that if you are, the, the Greeks would use tapenao either way, right? That, that if, if your motivation is, is carnal, and if, if you feel better about yourself by shoving somebody else down, okay? You know anybody like that? Work with somebody like that? All right. If, if you, uh, if by, by, by humiliating them, by pushing them down, by making them think less of themselves, if that makes you feel better about yourself, well, then you're engaged in what this world does, okay? And technically speaking, I suppose we could say that that's, that's a tape no application uh, as an active verb, using somebody else as an object and um, humbling them, but you're humbling them in the wrong way for the wrong reason, okay? Likewise, other people can humble you um, in, the, in the wrong way for the wrong reason or the right way for the right reason, or sometimes they don't even know how they're doing it, but they're doing it, Okay? I've had children humble me. I've had young children humble me out of the simple things that they say. And they say something just out of the blue. Okay? Ralph Braun tells that story on, uh, on um, a heated discussion. You know, husbands and wives sometimes have conversations on, you know, on a volume basis with some energy. Okay? And, and, and I won't say they were fighting because I don't think Ralph and Dorothy ever fought, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. Every marriage does. And their six-year-old little boy looks up at him and says, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy, Daddy, the battle is the Lord's. <laughs> you talk about quoting Scripture, right? And coming from a six-year-old, wow. Okay, That's the kind of thing. And it humbles you. And so if somebody else humbles you, thank God for it. And accept it. And recognize that it's necessary. Constantly. So uh, here's our uses on, on tape nao, and, and any of these should be um, just immediately familiar to us. Matthew 18 and verse 4. And um, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, who is and who cares? Jesus is. Well, you know, next question. <laughs> uh, you want to know who's second greatest? Who cares? You know, but why, why is that a question? So he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so here we have, again, like we have in our text today, we have the verb. It is an active voice verb. You have to do it. Active voice, you do it. But uh, you're also the object of that verb in the reflexive pronoun of himself. Humble himself. And uh, so become childlike, not childish, which we said a week ago. Um, and then that is the measure of greatness. The measure of greatness. It's a hall. Of, you've heard of the hall of fame? This is the hall of humble. Okay? And the hall of humble is, uh, is what uh, we observe here. And then whoever receives one such child of my name receives me. And the blessing to receive, to serve, to benefit the humble. 
And uh, we'll deal with that. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, massive consequence there. So reading from Matthew 18, 4 at the moment, whoever, uh, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, who believe in me to stumble. See, looking at a believer, looking at a humble believer, they do believe in him, but then dismissing them, causing them to stumble. We're going to talk about uh, some of those issues there. Still in Matthew, Matthew 23, 12. And uh, this too, in contrast with the uh, Pharisees, and they, uh, they were kind of the antithesis of humility. They were the greatest because they were the greatest, as far as they were concerned, in their, in their opinions. And, and the whole point, the, the, the noun, I mean, they named themselves Pharisee because they were the set-apart ones. That's what the verb speaks to. And that, you know, any Jew is set apart better than a Gentile. Well, any Pharisee is set apart better than any Jew. That's not a Pharisee. All right, so it's just another degree, another degree beyond, another degree beyond. And then the Apostle Paul, of course, is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So he is set apart even out Phariseeing the Pharisees. See how that works? And in, under legalism, you're going to hear about that tonight. Under legal, you got to do that. You got to outdo the guy that came before you. Anyway, uh, so in this context, then in Matthew 23 and verse 12, um, he talks about that. Uh, there's a context that precedes that, but you know, if you're lusting after that, craving after that, you want to be noticed by that. Um, they do their deeds to be noticed by men. All right, that's that's not humility. Not at all. You're just feeding an ego at that point. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments and whatever else. The place of honor at the banquets and chief seats at the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. All the perks of being called rabbi by man. Yeah, don't want any of that. The greatest among you shall be your servant. That's verse 11. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. See, God will do that. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, if you're fully engaged in a self-exaltation program, that's self-defeating. Because self-exaltation gets humbled. But self-humbling gets exalted. That's the secret. That's the the simplicity of the plan of God. James 4.10. Well, actually, yes. No. No. Uh, Philippians, Philippians 4.12. The two uses in Philippians and then James 4.10, 1 Peter 5.6. We know all of these. Uh, Philippians, of course, 2.8 is our passage today that, uh, that Jesus uh, humbled himself. After he emptied himself, he then went on to humble himself. And we'll talk about that. And then James 4.12. I know how to get along with humble means. That's the verb. I know how to be humbled. I also know how to live in prosperity. And so in this context, if, if, if you're using humility in a financial context, then uh, I don't object to this translation. It's a great way to express that. Uh, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Notice Paul would not preach today's modern prosperity theology. It says, you know, God wants you to be rich, and uh, if you're not, something's wrong with you. Uh, get right with God and, and uh, you know, adjust your Christian walk because uh, God has designed you to be uh, whatever, healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, and all of that. And that, 
And in that worldview, there, there is no secret to, uh, to being poor. Uh, that's a problem, and, and, and stop doing that. Get out of that. And, and Paul says, no, it's, hum- it's humbling, and it's a blessing. It's a secret. And if this is what God has designed, then you accept that. If God has designed the other, you accept that, and we'll likely have both uh, throughout the course of a lifetime and different times in different places. And so that's the use there. All right, James 4.10 and 1 Peter 5.6. And so that, that last one we saw is not a, uh, an active voice. It's more of a middle. Uh, let's look at James 4. You don't make yourself poor. Just if that's the circumstance you're in, you accept it and you are uh, humbled in that process. All right, Hebrews, James. Let me get to James. Somebody took James out of my Bible. There it is. And uh, this is in a chain of imperatives, uh, specifically uh, as greater grace gets mentioned there. And we don't want to be friends with the world. And, and uh, there's a lot here in, in, in this chapter. But verse 6 mentions a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So there's our adjective for humility, humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. These are all imperatives. So uh, submit to God and his will for your life, resist the devil, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's an imperative for intimacy, that's an imperative for our prayer life. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. We want greater consistency, less carnality, greater consistency in fellowship. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Those are commands. Again, that, that doesn't fly well with uh, prosperity theology and some of the other um, things that we see today. Uh, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That's a command. If you uh, need help with that, then find a, find a brother that's weeping and come alongside and weep with those who weep. Say, well, I don't have anything to weep about right now. Well, then your eyes aren't open. I'm weeping about a lot of stuff. Jesus was weeping about a lot of stuff. He wept over Jerusalem. Are you weeping over America? All right. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. We're not in the millennium yet. We're not in the fullness of time yet. Church age is not a party. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So humble yourselves. That's a command. And since he humbled himself, we're commanded to humble ourselves. 1 Peter 5, 6 very similar. I think he probably ripped off James when he wrote this. Again, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Quoting Proverbs there in verse 5 and then verse 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Okay, When is the exaltation proper time? (laughs) Is that in the church age? Is that here and now? Are we going to shake our fist at God and say, God, I've been humbling myself for two whole weeks now. When's the exaltation going to come? Come on, God. Man, I humbled myself for an entire month already. You know, I, clearly I, need, I'm, I deserve 10 years of prosperity. There's got to be, I'm waiting for the exaltation now. Well, what if it's 70 years of humility? In other words, the time of our life here on earth. We have this treasure in earth and vessels. What if that, that entire period is our period of humbling ourselves? so that the proper time can be well done, good and faithful servant 
at the judgment seat of Christ. And then the exaltation can be uh, clothed in white, following on white horses and descending behind our Savior to reign. Uh, we will reign. We will judge this world. We will rule this world. We will reign with Christ. I think the proper time for this kind of exaltation is when we don't have the sin nature so that we can handle the exaltation. Okay? And if there is some, you know, limited temporal uh, exaltation here in this church age, okay, fine. Special blessings in time. I won't turn them down, but I'm not promised them. Okay? I am promised the special blessings for eternity, not the special blessings in time. I want to be clear on that. All right, so self-humbling. Secondly now, becoming obedient to the point of death. Becoming obedient to the point of death. So now this is the participle that defines the verb. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Remember the, the verb emptied himself had three participles. The verb humbled himself just has this one. But this one gets extended. This one gets stretched out with an even, okay? Becoming obedient to the point of death. And it's not his physical death either, by the way. Spiritual death, separation from God the Father. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The physical darkness extended upon the cross. No one could see what was happening in that darkness. But beyond the physical darkness was the spiritual dimension, the separation Death is a separation, separation from God the Father. Okay? It's not an inactivity. He was very active in that death. He was very active in accepting every sin that was laid upon him and in accepting the wrath of God as it was laid upon him. Very active in that separation. People talk about it's a bad definition of death is inactivity. Death is not inactivity. Death is separation. All right. Eris participle of ginemai, plus the adjective of hupekaos. Ginemai, number 1096, we've seen many, many times. And then hupekaos, we've not seen many, many times, but it's an adjective for um, obedient. Hupa, uh, uh, we have uh, hupakuo is the verb, and there's bunches of verbs. Uh, the, the verb to obey is, is throughout the New Testament. Um, the idea of akuo means to hear, hupakuo uh, hupo uh, puts you under what you've heard. And so if you obey, that means you are submitting to what you've heard. That's the idea of, of, of obedience. And so you've heard a command, you, you place yourself under that, that uh, command, and you do it. That's obedience. And like I say, we've got a verb everywhere, but the verb isn't here. It's not the verb. Okay? It's, it's a participle of becoming. So it doesn't say that he humbled him, that he emptied himself, he humbled himself and he obeyed. It doesn't say he obeyed. But when he humbled himself, becoming obedient. Becoming obedient. That's the difference. It's not a finite verb that says he obeyed. It's the, the participle of becoming. Right? And there's a big difference between obeying and becoming obedient. Because this is what we're dealing with here. All right. So Acts 7.39, 2 Corinthians 2.9, Philippians 2.8, those are our three uses of obedient. And, you know, we, we the adjective obedient is basically self-explanatory. Um, Acts 7.39, it's, it's descriptive of uh, 
of an attitude. Acts 7.39, our fathers were unwilling to become obedient to him, but repudiated him in all their hearts, turned back to Egypt. Okay, that's the use there. And I think it's very similar in language, unwilling to become or to be obedient to him. Not just that they didn't want to obey, they didn't want to become obedient. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2.9. Chapter 2, verse 9. So he says, Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. They kicked the man out, now they got to bring him back. For to this end I also wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Not just whether they're going to do what they're told to do and obey this one thing he says and bring the man back into the church. It's not just whether they're going to specifically obey one specific expectation but whether or not they are going to become obedient to God. Are they going to be an obedient flock? They have not yet demonstrated to Paul that they are an obedient flock. And so that's a, that's a huge difference there as well. Now, under this, I think there's some, uh, some aspects here. Under this, clearly self-humbling is accomplished through prolonged obedience that never draws a line or crosses lines that others might draw. Okay? Self-humbling. How does this happen? Well, it's illustrated by Christ. Self-humbling is accomplished through prolonged obedience that never draws a line. Or you might think of it as prolonged obedience that crosses lines others might draw. Okay? Maybe somebody else draws a line there, you're not going to draw that line. Or if they try to draw a line for you, you just cross it and keep going. The point is, it is uh, an expectation that becoming obedient is lifelong. Becoming obedient is attitudinal, all day, every day. um, Becoming obedient doesn't have a limit to it. We don't stop and say, all right, God, that's enough. I've done what you want me to do long enough. Okay, now you start doing something for me now because I'm done otherwise until I start getting something my way. That's not how obedience works. That's not how becoming obedient, even to death, even death on a cross. And so you can think of this as a two-step extension or even a three-step extension. How about Matthew 26, 38, and 42? It's a good illustration of this and then others in Revelation that address this. You know, if if you have a child and he, you know, maybe he's largely obedient, you know, to a point. Maybe he's mostly obedient within limits. Okay? A child like that, would you call that child obedient? Or kind of obedient? Or somewhat obedient? The moment you get to the point of somewhat obedient, that can be rephrased to frequently disobedient. Okay? I mean, that's what we're dealing with. And and Jesus was never disobedient. Not once to the will of God. Not once. So it's, it's curious to me um, the attitude that some people have because they, they, they draw lines, they put limits. 
on, on the Christian walk. And uh, this gets uh, spoken of here, Matthew 26, 38. Um, you know, um, here's Jesus in the garden. They come to a place called Gethsemane. And he says to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of uh, Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Oh, that's powerful language right there. Uh, remain here and keep watch with me. Notice he doesn't reach a point that he says, I can't handle this and so I'm done. I'm drawing the line, no more. I'm, I'm bailing, let's get out of here. Let's, let's run, let's hide somewhere. No. He's reached a point where somebody else may want to draw a line and I think these guys are so tired they keep falling asleep. You know, not exactly a priority for them. Um, who else would draw a line there? Would you draw a line there? Would I draw a line there? To be deeply grieved to the point of, of death? To, to accept the, uh, the sorrows and the grief and everything that's going to be imputed to him the next day? He's already wrestling with it this night. The Father is showing him what, these, what the, the suffering is and he's accepting it. We'll deal with that. And so, uh, yeah. Then he went a little beyond them and fell on his face. Prayed and said, Father, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. So you're into that kind of conflict and you might say, hey, can we... Uh, <laughs> Can we, uh, can we go a different direction here? Father, is it, is it possible? Could it be your will? Is it too late to, uh, to, to devise a different plan here, Father? And he's saying that out loud. You know he's thinking it. Because he says it out loud. Let this cup pass from me. Jesus does not want to go to the cross. There is a part of his humanity that uh, says it out loud. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He also confesses that if he acts upon that desire, it's going to be a desire contrary to the Father's desire. And yet the reality is that desire is there. My will is to let this cup pass by. But thy will is go to the cross. So he says, not my will, thy will be done. See, never sinned. There's no sin in this. There's no sin in facing a temptation. There's no sin in wondering <laughs> how bad it would be if you do it. Okay? I think, it's, I think it's edifying. I think to consider what those consequences are, God wants us to consider the consequences. He wants us to not just blindly obey, but to thoughtfully obey. He wants us to think through every act of obedience to not only do the right thing, but to do the right thing for the right reason. And so, you know, if, you, if you're looking at something and saying, wow, that would destroy my marriage, that would destroy my church, that would devastate my children, that would, wow. Okay? And then to factor all of that into saying, I'm not going to do that, I can't do that. I'm not, there's no way. I mean, I could do that. It'd be carnally fun to do that, but no. Father, no. Not my will, but thine be done. Okay?
And I think that's what Jesus teaches us in this. And this is what obedience is. Obedience, thoughtful obedience in understanding what is expected, why it's expected, what it accomplishes, and in, and I think thoughtfully dismissing the alternatives is, uh, is appropriate because he never sins in this. And so uh, he comes to the disciples and he finds them sleeping. And he says to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So in the whole hypostatic union uh, uh, plan of God, in designing Jesus Christ in, in, uh, as the God-man, the idea that, uh, and a body thou hast prepared for me to, to take the God-man and to put him in a body of flesh means that now Jesus Christ has a vulnerability he didn't have before. That there is a weakness that comes with the body of the flesh. And um, that, again, we can't deny that. That's true as far as it goes and what it says here. So he went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away, unless I drink it, your will be done. So this is the have to. And he submits to the have to. The only way to uh the only way to get beyond the cross is to go through the cross. Okay? The only way for this to pass away is to drink it. Can't dump it out, gotta drink it. All right. And again, he finds him sleeping. <laughs> so again, he goes back and he prays away third time, saying the same thing. Not drawing any lines. Not drawing any lines. What does Revelation 2 say? I'll give you a hint. Be faithful until death? Or be faithful until discomfort? Be faithful as far as you want to go with it. Be faithful until you just draw the line and say, well, that's good enough. Right? You know, it's like watering down marriage vows today. It's no longer till death us do part. It's now as long as we both shall love instead of as long as we both shall live. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And so, okay, so love's over, goodbye, walk away from your marriage, is that it? Those are some cheap vows, I tell you. All right, be faithful until death. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested so, um, yeah, the devil does what he does and God allows it because God turns uh, perazzo into dokimazzo. God says, all right, devil's going to tempt you. I'm going to use it for your testing. You will be tested, dokimazzo, for your approval, your approval. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Guess what? Not only does he allow it, but he puts a finite limit to it. Thank you, God. But I don't want any thalipsis. I don't want tribulation at all. I shouldn't have to have that. I want the prosperity gospel. You will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. When you don't draw a line in the sand, when you are just open-ended in your obedience and your faithfulness, there's reward for that. There's reward for that. He who has an ear, let him hear. And um, next church, Pergamum. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Pergamum, remember, is the political capital. And if you live in a political capital, like, say, oh, I don't know, Austin, Texas, you might expect angelic conflict. And you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You know, I can't, I can't imagine, if, but if, if uh, we face this, that church in Sutherland Springs, and they had that massacre there, it was November already, it's been a while now, and, um, and yet, are they staying faithful? Are they still assembling as a flock? Are they submitting to their shepherd? Even uh, though they've gone through difficult days and they've had people killed in their, in their church on a Sunday morning? So uh, do we draw a line in the sand or do we stop and say, well, enough of that, enough of that. Revelation 12 and verse 11. Oh, I like some of these. These are interesting. backing up to verse 7 there was war in heaven you know it just seems that wars get more and more larger world war one world war two there's something bigger than a world war by the way it's uh war in heaven as well as war on earth how about that there was war in heaven michael and his angels waging war with the dragon the dragon and his angels waged war And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. In some respects, it bugs me that they can still go up there today. Satan's got access to the courts, at least, where he can go up there and file grievances and appeals and and accusations and whatever. Well, there's a day coming when even that privilege is revoked. They were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil, and Satan. Any questions who we're talking about here? Okay, that's our adversary, the devil, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. But look how it has to come. And it has to come through this. It has to come through the greatest wrath and tribulation that this planet's ever seen. But now it's come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Um, He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. And so there's an overcomer application that's going to be given to the tribulational martyrs, going to be given to Israel in the millennium. We already enter into overcomer language based on our status as church age saints, but they're going to receive overcomer status in their, in their dispensation. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. The special reward they receive, those that are beheaded, those that are, that are martyred because they wouldn't take the mark of the beast, tribulational martyrs get resurrected at the beginning of the millennium and they get to serve in a reigning capacity for that provisional government of the millennial kingdom. They become the rulers, the administrators of the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. That's their blessing. Greater than, uh, it's it's a perk above all other Jewish rewards. Even when faced with death. So for this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. 
and woe to the earth. Yeah, think about that. And the timing on this, I, I, I can't, you know, I've tried to pinpoint it. It's, is it the midpoint of the tribulation? Most likely that's the case. Is it the beginning of the tribulation? Possible. Okay. Uh, when he gets thrown down, he has great wrath knowing his time is short. I mean, when he knows he's permanently expelled from heaven, then he has to set about his goal to exterminate the Jewish people. So this is his last hope. The last only hope that he has is to prove God a liar by killing all the Jews. And uh, whatever the case, um, in part I want to put it at the beginning of the, ra- of, the, of the tribulation, so it's at the rapture. I think there's a trumpet that sounds when, uh, when we get raptured, right? the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Uh, it, it makes sense to me that uh, Jesus is going to want some privacy when he brings his bride home, that uh, he's going to rapture the church, he's going to bring us to heaven, and that bringing the bride to heaven, that we're going to conduct the great white throne, the uh, judgment seat of Christ. We have to uh, be dressed in white. We have to be presented to the Father. We have to have the wedding supper with the Father. And, and it's so, I don't know, in part I think that coincides well with expelling Satan and all the fallen angels out of there. That, uh, uh, so we'll see. I, I won't fight with any dispensationalist that wants to model it either as a rapture expulsion or a midpoint uh, tribulation expulsion. But at some point, as this warfare is going on, uh, Michael and his angels are going to boot the, the fallen angels out of heaven. And, uh, and that's clear. And so heaven gets to rejoice. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he is only a short time. All right, so that's the, the vision there. Point being, they were humble, they were faithful, and they did not deny they did not love their life even when faced with death, is the expression there. So self-humbling is accomplished through prolonged obedience that never draws a line or crosses lines that others might draw. Obedience learned through suffering is the perfection process for humanity. Obedience learned through suffering is the perfection process for humanity. So obe- obedience learned through um, non-suffering, obedience learned through prosperity, or obedience learned through uh, good stuff, you know, happy stuff, yeah. Easy to obey when things are going great. What are you really learning? Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. And if a Hebrew, uh, um, obedience learned through partial obedience, what do you learn there? <coughs> what What true humility is developed there. When you draw a line and you're not willing to cross it. When you're not willing to cross it, then you're not willing to learn the lessons that are across that line you won't cross. Say, well, that's enough. Enough what? Enough lessons learned? Or enough because there's more to learn? You can't learn the power God's going to sustain you through until you get there. Strength is perfected in weakness. You can't learn the faithfulness of God until you get there. You're content knowing just the little bit of faithfulness He's shown you so far. He's waiting to show you even more faithfulness when you cross that line you say you don't want to cross. So, um, here's our high priest in chapter 5. And um, 
not quite there yet. We're going to start in chapter 4 this morning. But chapter 5, we talk about Christ as our high priest. And uh, we have such a high priest. What a delight. 4.14 says, we have a great high priest. Really great. Okay? And then you get to chapter 5, and this really great high priest, um, every human high priest, every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God uh, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, raise your hand, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. So there's an advantage in having, uh, you know, an ignorant, misguided, weak human who gets selected to be a high priest that can serve on your behalf because he's one of you. And uh, also, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so for himself, okay? And that's the whole point in identifying as a, as a high priest. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So, now Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but the same Father who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In another passage, it's the same God, who, Father, who says to him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so here we have this example of Jesus. And now he is called upon to identify with us. Uh, doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself, but he does have to be humbled and learn the, the lessons of suffering that we learn. So in the days of his flesh, he, this is the incarnation, first advent ministry of Jesus Christ. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Notice, nothing wrong with his prayer ministry. Nothing wrong with his prayers. Nothing wrong with his fervency. Nothing wrong with, I mean, he's to the point of tears sweating great drops of blood to the one able to save him, but choosing not to. When you pray to the one able, but choosing not to, that's a humility test. The father was able to save him from death, but didn't. Okay? That's the whole point. When we're praying, when we're staying faithful, when we're obeying, when we're walking uh, in obedience... And we're saying, is it possible to take this cup from me? Are you able to take this cup from me? And the Father says, no. Do we stay faithful? Do we thank Him for the answer? No. Do we thank Him for, you know, Garth Brooks called it unanswered prayer. I believe it's an answered prayer. The answer is no. Okay? The answer is, I got something better for you. Okay? Anyway, um, remember that song? He's at his high school reunion and he sees the girl he thought he was going to marry someday and then he's, wow, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Okay, because, man, the girl you gave me, this this is it. This is beyond what I could ask or think. I'm thankful. All right. Um. And although he was a son, so he's offering up these prayers to the one able to save him from death. He was heard because of his piety. He was heard. It's not as if God doesn't hear when he answers no. He hears. And although he was a son, 
He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And the Father says, no, you have to go to the cross. You have to go to the cross. This is the design. And this is what they put forth. He's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed to this plan at the Eternal Life Conference of Eternity Past. And so, in the, you know, on that night in Gethsemane, the, the, the humanity of Christ, praying from the flesh, had to submit to that plan. So he learned obedience. And having been made perfect, look at that. So this is a perfection process. Now, he was already perfect. See, the thing is, we, we use perfect in different ways. <coughs> he was the perfect son, we're perfecting perfection here, okay? And uh, maybe that bothers us because the words are being used in this way, but nevertheless, this is how it's being used. And so he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and avoiding that would have kept him from being made perfect. You see that? If he would have bailed on it, or if the father would have just compromised, your father would have said, well, okay, fine, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to put you through that. You don't have to go to the cross. Well then, he would have avoided the perfection process. Having been made perfect or perfected, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. It's on that basis that we have the eternal life that we have. We have the salvation we have. If he's not that kind of Savior, we don't have our kind of salvation. All right. And that takes you into some deep stuff. <laughs> uh, high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Our priesthood is this Melchizedek priesthood. Our function in the, within the veil is this Melchizedek priesthood. And it's a tough thing. The author admits this in verse 11. Concerning him, Melchizedek, or concerning which... We have much to say, it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So this is our Savior. Now, not only is He willing to suffer death, He even now, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross, it says. Even death on a cross. Jesus accepted a substitutionary, sacrificial death. Think about how unique our Savior's work was. He accepted a substitutionary, sacrificial death. Accepting the curse of sin. He even became a curse. Accepting the curse of sin, the curse of the law, and the infinite wrath of God. He accepted all of that. We look at some scriptures, and I'm going to run out of time this morning. Um, we'll come back to this Wednesday night. We're going to look at some scriptures. When we see everything that he accepted, what he did in his priestly ministry, what he did during those six hours, including three hours of darkness, what he accomplished, what he accepted, means everything that came before it, the scourging, the mocking, the crown of thorns, all that, that, all that you know, I'm sure it wasn't easy at the time, but a day later, that looking back on it, that stuff was easy. 
looking back on the crown of thorns, looking back on the scourging, looking back on the 39 lashes, looking back on the, the Mel Gibson gruesome uh, you know, physical adversity. It's hard to watch. I can't, it's unthinkable. It's unimaginable to experience. Nothing compared to the curse of sin, the curse of the law, and the infinite wrath of God. He accepted all of that. Accepted those three things, we're told, while he was on the cross. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. He, he had no joy in the cross, but he kept looking at it the whole time. That joy was right there. Who for the joy before him despised the shame, endured the cross, and is seated at the Father's right hand. So um, jot these down, read through them. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. Um, Hebrews 12, 2. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. All right. And even while you're at it, uh, let me just add on to that. Uh, just throw uh, Genesis 21 on there while you're at it. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Okay. And uh, anytime you go back, I know Randy likes to do this. I like to do this. Anytime I can go back to Abraham and Isaac, we've got a picture there of God the Father and God the Son. And we've got a father willing to sacrifice his son. And we've got a son who carries his own wood. He walks in fellowship and in faith with his father. It's a powerful chapter. And for Isaac, Jehovah Jireh supplied a a, a ram in his place. For Jesus, there is no substitute. For Jesus, if Jesus doesn't do it, it doesn't happen. And so Abraham was spared, willing to do what the father was willing to do and didn't have to do it. The father had to do it, had to, and did it. So did the son. And that's, uh, that's why we're saved. <laughs> that's why uh, we're, we're redeemed from the curse of sin. That's why we're redeemed from the curse of the law. Because Jesus Christ became a curse and accepted the, the wrath of God in our place. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for this message. And I pray, Father, uh, there are dimensions and depths of things that perhaps... Uh, um, are going to be rough to, to try to wrap our minds around. So we thank you that your Holy Spirit will guide us in these things, that you, Father, will provide even, uh, even the deep things of God. You will open the eyes of our understanding and bless us with this totality. And do so, Father, in a, in a, in a very um, special way, because uh, at least in my thinking, Father, I know that when the, the sheer weight and power and majesty and the, the overwhelming work that was accomplished at the cross, when the totality of that becomes clear, Father, then it just is, it then makes what follows so much more. Uh, it makes my eternal security so much more powerful because you've done so much already. Why would you throw it away now? How could you throw it away now? You can't, Father. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What will you not do for us now that we are righteous, now that we are in your Son? So, Father, the, uh, the contrast is clear. And the more, the more uh, we, we recognize what our Savior did, the more we're motivated to uh, ourselves walk in that same manner. We want to have that same obedience. So, Father, if there's anything in our lives, if we're drawing lines, if we're putting limits, if we're willing to be mostly obedient, then that means we're willing to be somewhat disobedient uh, on occasion. And, and, Father, get rid of that. Discipline that out of us. Father, we want to be 100% obedient all day, every day. 
for the glory of your Son. I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right.